Good morning, church. My name is Joel Davis. Thanks, Tom, for the introduction. Um, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark 2. We're going to be in 18 through 22 today. I was, when Curtis asked me to speak this morning, I was pretty excited because I saw that it was daylight savings time, and I thought, oh, good, the least amount of people are going to be here to see whatever is about to take place, Uh, but you guys really ruined that for me. The place is packed today, Uh, but I'm excited, I'm humbled, and honored uh, to proclaim to you the good news of Jesus um, and the new wine of his kingdom, as we are going to read about uh, in Mark 2. I, I got to tell you, I, I was pretty jittery, pretty nervous. I saw that clock in the back, and I knew that we had an 11 o'clock service, so I like just burned a trail through the message in like probably 10 minutes tops. Uh, but now we got nothing, you know, I know y'all... Uh, stomachs are not already telling you that it's time for lunch, right? Um, so I got all the time in the world. We got no place to go. So uh, let's just bar the doors and do this thing, right? Um, so Mark 2, uh, verses 18 through 22, read with me. Now Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. So let me set this up for you. Uh, There are three groups of people in our story. There are the disciples of John the Baptist, there are the Pharisees, and there are Jesus's disciples. So I guess there's four. There's Jesus himself as well. Um, and both the Pharisees and the disciples of John are fasting and very likely they are fasting for two completely different reasons. And we're going to talk about what those reasons are, but Jesus's disciples are not fasting. And this is a break with the traditions of the time, with the Jewish traditions of the time. And John's disciples and the Pharisees want to know what gives Why are you not following the traditions of our elders, of our forefathers, of our ancestors? And so in order to do this, in order to set up why, I want to show you why each group of uh, men are fasting. And I want to show you why neither one of those reasons are any longer valid in the presence of the Messiah. Okay, so in order to do this, we got to go all the way back to Leviticus. So turn in your Bibles, keep a finger in Mark, go all the way back to Leviticus 16, and we are going to look at the one time, only one time, that God institutes a fast for his people. The Day of Atonement. You guys ever heard of this thing before? Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We just had it. It was about a month ago. Um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is a, uh, a religious holiday 
for the Jewish people meant to recognize their own sinfulness, their fallenness before a holy God, and to draw back into his presence. And in doing that, God would forgive them of their sins for another year. So let's read about this fast. We're gonna start in verse 15. Then he shall kill, he being Aaron, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with this blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Jump down to verse 20. And when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to, remo- to a remote area, and he shall let the goat f- go free in the wilderness. The only time that Israel, that God's people, are asked to fast is in mourning for their sinfulness so that God might forgive them and that in recognizing their own sinfulness, they might draw near and into the presence of God. And so in order to do this, we've got two goats And one of them is going to spill its blood in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, going to spill its blood. And this is the big word for you. Here's your SAT word of the day. The propitiation, the payment for sins. And so I love that Pastor Tom has already read for us Ephesians. Let me just read 1-7 again. In him we have redemption through his what? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we've got one sin offering that covers over the penalty of sin. And then we've got another goat. You get, and we all come to know this as the scapegoat. We are familiar with this term where the high priest comes and symbolically places the sins of the goat, uh, sins of the people, sins of the goat. I don't think goats have sin, I don't know. Um, Sins of the people on the head of the scapegoat and they release it into the wilderness as far away as it can possibly get from the people of Israel. And we're reminded of Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so we have what's another, here's your second SAT word of the day. I know you guys are gonna be crushing it, 1600s across the board. We've got the expiation of sin. We've got the carrying away of sin from the people of Israel for another year. And what I want you to see is that Christ is the fulfillment of both of these practices. In himself, he has not only atoned for our sins, but has carried them as far away from us as we can possibly imagine, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we've got a good thing. We've got a really good thing in the day of atonement. And it is right and proper for Israel to practice this. But 
as we know from reading the Old Testament, that does not happen very well or very often or very consistently. And so God allows his people to be exiled into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes, and if you've ever read this, the very last couple of chapters of 2 Kings, Nebuchadnezzar comes in the Babylonians in one of the most violent, destructive, total annihilations of his people. They, they lay Jerusalem to the ground. They murder, enslave all of God's people and carry them off into captivity. Um, and these are the consequences for God's people when they don't recognize their sinfulness before him. And so there's mourning. And Israel in captivity in Babylon institutes four annual fasts where they recognize that waywardness. They recognize that fallenness And they say to themselves, we cannot let this happen again. We have to come back. We have to repent of our sinfulness. We have to draw back into right standing with Yahweh. And so these four fasts, we hear about them in Zechariah. And it'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But Zechariah 7, verse 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, And in the seventh, for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And so we see that even shortly after their repentance, even in the midst of captivity, under foreign oppression, even then they lose the purpose of this fasting and they make it about the act and they make it about, they basically, essentially, uh, what I read was that this, was, this became sort of a pity party, a quarterly pity party for themselves, no longer actually desiring repentance. So was it really for me? Was it really for the Lord? But it gets actually worse than this. Is not only, they say to themselves, hey, look, This quarterly fast, this is good, but wouldn't more fasting make for more righteousness? Isn't more, more? Isn't that the, right? And so by the time we get over here to Mark 2, the tradition of the Jewish people was not just the day of atonement. It wasn't just the quarterly fast. It was twice a week, every week. Every Monday and Thursday, the pious religious Jews would fast. And it became something that they were able to look around in their circles and in their communities and say, why don't you fast twice a week? Don't you see me fasting twice a week? Don't you know that that is the tradition of our people to fast twice a week? No, never mind that the Lord never actually commanded us to do this. Don't you know this is how we do things around here? Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? So 
God's people, if you're following along, why do the Jews fast? Well, first of all, God's people only ever fast in anticipation of redemption, in repentance and anticipation of a coming redemption from God. And yet, that is not what it turns into by the time we get to Mark 2, by the time we get to Jesus. And so Jesus' disciples don't fast because, and I'm sorry, this is the second bullet point. Those of you, I know, I apologize, rookie mistake, that's on me. But the second bullet point, the kingdom cannot be mixed with, with excuse me, previous or worldly traditions. The kingdom of God cannot be mixed with previous or worldly traditions. So are you ruining perfectly legitimate means of drawing in to the presence of God by using them as measuring sticks by which you compare your own righteousness to the righteousness of the person to your left and to your right. There's nothing wrong with fasting. God instituted fasting for his people to draw them into his presence, to recognize sinfulness. But did you take something like that? Did you take church attendance? Did you take quiet time? Did you take, you fill it in. And did you all of a sudden make that a way to compare your righteousness to someone else's and inflate your own ego? Stop that. Because I can promise you that what you initially set out to do to draw into the presence of God, that's not happening anymore. But it's not just the Pharisees, it's also John's disciples. John's disciples were fasting. And we know, we know about John's disciples. We know about John the Baptist. We know that he was just kind of a crazy guy. He was way out in the sticks, you know, eating, you know, wearing camel's hair and eating wild honey and, and locusts and sackcloth and ashes. And there is nothing wrong with John's fast because John is legitimately longing for the presence of God, longing for the coming of the kingdom. He says, he must become greater, I must become less. This is a good thing. And yet John's disciples miss the actual coming of the king. They miss the actual bridegroom for whom they are fasting. Jesus is in their presence. And they say, wait a minute. Jesus, don't you understand? We're supposed to be fasting. We're waiting for the Messiah. I want you to get a picture of the tragic irony of this. That for entirely different reasons... They have missed Jesus. So who is the bridegroom? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Okay, so who is the bridegroom, church, right? 
Jesus. Okay, when the Sunday school answer is the correct answer, right? But not only is Jesus the bridegroom, we also know that the bridegroom is the Lord. Turn to Hosea. Or it'll be up on the screen. In Hosea 2, starting in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So one of the things that I want you to see in this passage that I thought was very strange when I first read this, I said, why on earth would Israel call Yahweh my Baal? That doesn't make any sense. I know who the Baals are. I know those are foreign gods. Those are idols of other other nations around Israel. Why would they call Yahweh my Baal? And an interesting thing is that the term Baal, the name Baal, literally means Lord. So I want you to see something. That God is so deeply covenanting himself to his people that a perfectly legitimate name for him, my Lord, dear Lord, oh Lord, which is not bad. Unless you're Israel and you ran after the Baals, the lords of other cultures, other nations, false gods instead of the true God. So God says, you're not even going to call me Lord anymore. You're going to call me husband. You're going to call me the groom and you are now my bride and you will know faithfulness and you will know righteousness and you will know me. And so Jesus paints this picture for John's disciples. Look, you don't understand. The thing that you've been longing for, the prophecy of Hosea and Isaiah and Ezekiel, that the bridegroom would covenant himself to you and you would know him here, hi, here I am. So Jesus' disciples don't fast because the bridegroom's presence means celebration not mourning. Not mourning. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will go and they will fast in that day. So Jesus prophesying his own death, even in this backdrop of celebration, even in this time of rejoicing over the kingdom of God being at hand, prophesies that he will be taken away from them. And that take away has a violent connotation to it. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
If he does, the patch tears away the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, right? So I thought about that. What does that look like? What does this new wine look like that Jesus is saying is come, is at hand, is there in his presence? And the first verse that came to my mind was Isaiah 43, and we're going to jump over there. And Jesus says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. I want you to see the bizarre picture that gets painted for us in Mark. Jesus opens up the floodgates in the Sahara. There is a massive river pouring through this wasteland that you can't even see the other side of. And yet, John's disciples are three feet offshore in sackcloth and ashes eating locusts, going, we're not worthy. No, we can't have this water, Jesus. We don't want this water. We want wild honey. We want ashes. It's crazy. It's nuts. And then the Pharisees, as if that was bad enough, the Pharisees are like way offshore, and they're scooping cups of sand and drinking it going, water. What does this guy know about water? We want sand. We want tradition. We want the old way. And in the parallel passage in Luke, it actually, Luke even goes on to say that those who don't know new wine will fool themselves into thinking the old is good. So I don't want to, I don't want to take anything away from, from an upcoming sermon, but the very next story in the gospel of Mark is going to have these Pharisees plotting to have Jesus executed because they think the old is good. They think the old is so good that they are going to murder the man that tells them that new wine is on the table, that new wine is an option. And I think about that and the, the tragedy of that. But I think I'm not much different than them sometimes. I should not be so foolish as to think that I am on any sort of higher plane than these Pharisees that I'm reading about. We have two ways that we misunderstand the new wine of Jesus' coming kingdom probably have a lot more than that, but I'm going to share two with you. We misunderstand the new wine of Jesus's kingdom by thinking that people cannot really be transformed. I don't know if you knew this, but before, before you share your first sermon um, ever in your local church, it is like a law of the universe that your week is going to be insane. 
It's going to be crazy. Stuff's going to come unglued. You're not going to get any sleep. Uh, it's just going to be nuts. Um, and I had one of those. Uh, and in the past week, I have gotten into two knockdown, drag out, nasty arguments with very close friends of mine. And I hung up the phone in both cases. And I went into my wife, blood pressure through the roof. And the first thing that I said was, he has always been that way. He will never change. And at the moment that I did that, I believed the lie. I believed that the gospel was not the most transformative, life-changing power in the universe. I lost sight of that. And I said that a brother in Christ could not be changed. Why? Because I denied the power of the spirit living within him. And we do that all the time. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. I promise you that you are not capable of transforming yourself. You can go to Barnes and Noble. You can empty the, the self-help shelves. You, under your own power and authority, cannot transform yourself. But the gospel can. But Jesus Christ can through the spirit that's living in you. And he can do that for others. And I had a conversation. These arguments that I had, these were with brothers in Christ. But he can do that with everyone you know. He can do that with your neighbor. He can do that with the guy next to you at work. He can do that with that person that has just driven you nuts for years, doesn't know the Lord. Please do not say of that person, they can never be changed. And finally, We misunderstand the new wine of Jesus' kingdom by thinking that he came to save only people like us. In the previous story, in the previous passage in Mark, we see Jesus, not surprisingly, reclining at table with sinners with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with the least of these. And the Pharisees looking on said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. This is an age-old truth of who God is. In the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and through you all 
of the peoples of the world will be blessed. God's people from the very beginning were a vehicle, a vessel of God's goodness to the entire world. And they did an okay job in the Old Testament. There were sojourners living in their midst. We know that there were people beyond their borders that came in. Rahab the prostitute listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, not a Jewish person. But that prophecy finds its fulfillment in Christ, where in Colossians 3, verse 11, we see that there is now not Greek, not Jew, nor circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, red, blue, black, white, inside the loop, outside the loop. I'm talking to you people in the Heights, okay? I'm from Katy. Don't judge me, okay? But Christ is all and in all. Are you thoroughly committed to the idea that Jesus came to save people that do not necessarily look like you, that do not necessarily think like you or talk like you, or God help us vote like you. We've got this thing that's happening on Tuesday, I hear, right? And I get to talk about it because I'm not coming back next week. So if you don't like what I'm about to say, then I will direct you my email address. You can email me. It's Curtis at BayouCityFellowship.com. Direct all complaints there. But I'm ashamed to tell you that those two conversations that I had with my close friends were both political in nature. And you can go friend me on Facebook to figure out exactly what I think about this whole mess. But, because I'm not quiet about it. But I found myself disagreeing with not one, but both of them. And I found myself siloing myself off, creating these divisions within the body of Christ. I can't associate with you. I don't understand how you can make that decision. Don't you know, haven't you, can I, don't, didn't you hear my line of reasoning for this? How can you think differently than me? Do you find yourself breaking fellowship with somebody over a ballot box? If you do, if you do, then you have bought into a lie that the most important affiliation that you have is not with the kingdom of God. It is with something else. It is with a political party, an institution of man that is going away one day. I want to read you a quote from a book called Resident Aliens by Stanley Hauerwas. In this book, he's having a conversation with a friend of his. 
about a crisis in Libya. And they're asking, what are we to do about this? What should a Christian response be to this? And he says to his friend off the top of his head, well, a Christian response might be tomorrow morning, the United Methodist Church announces that it is sending a thousand missionaries to Libya. We have discovered that it is a fertile field for the gospel. We know how to send missionaries. So here is at least the traditional response that the church could have. You can't do that, said his adversary. Why, he asked, tell me why. Because it's illegal to travel in Libya, President Reagan will not give you a visa to go there. No, that's not right, he responded. I'll admit that we can't go to Libya, but not because of President Reagan. We can't go there because we no longer have a church that produces people who can do something this bold. But we once did. We would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world. That the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar and that the main political task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price for it. Yeah, you can clap for that. Have you forgotten? Have we missed this truth? I'm begging you. I'm not going to tell you what to do on Tuesday. I'm begging you, though, that whatever you do, Republican, Democrat, third party, or conscientiously abstain, I'm begging you not to see that decision as the primary vehicle of reformation and restoration in this place or in our world. I am begging you to see that all of our time and resources and investment and passion has to be poured into the bride of Christ, his church. And that it is not going to function the way that it is supposed to if we all look the same. Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Convention says this in an op-ed. Says the thriving churches of American Christianity are multi-generational, theologically robust, ethnically diverse, and connected to the global church. If Jesus is alive, he will keep his promise and build his church. But he never promises to do that solely, solely with white, suburban, institutional evangelicalism. This is why I love our church. I'm a leader of a community group and there is no distinction. We don't have young singles community groups. We don't have um, uh, senior citizen community groups. We don't have, we, where do you live? Then go there and be in community with those people. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter who you're voting for. It doesn't matter how much money you make. Just go and be a part of the body. 
I pray today that we would not miss what Jesus is trying to do among us, is graciously inviting us alongside him to do with him. May we drink freely from the new wine of Jesus's kingdom this week. Let's pray. Father, we have in so many ways and on so many occasions missed the mark. We have all but looked you in the face and said, don't you understand this is the way that we do things. God, forgive us for those moments and those times and the ways in which we do that. Father, unify us to yourself and for your sake. May we be the most influential culture, counter culture in this place and in this world. Father, we long for your coming. There's a very real sense in which we are not currently in the presence of the bridegroom, but we know that you are coming again. Father, prepare our hearts for that day. Teach us to be courageous in the things that you are calling us into. Give us strength for the task ahead. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.